Welcome to Apparently Speaking, the podcast from Northeast Ohio Parent with your host, Miriam Connor. Girls today are more anxious and more prone to depression and self-harming than ever before. My guest today, author of Girls on the Brink, helping our daughters thrive in the era of increased anxiety, depression, and social media, is here to discuss the reasons why and what can be done to help. Sponsored by the all-new Mazda of Kent. Your family safety is our top priority. And Mazda has more Insurance Institute for Highway Safety Picks than any other manufacturer. So get to your Mazda destination, Mazda of Kent. Check out new Mazda CX-5 crossover SUVs, Mazda CX-30 CUVs, even 2023 Mazda CX-50 crossover SUVs. And U.S. News & World Report awarded Mazda Best Car Brand. Check out their new retail evolution dealership, the all-new Mazda of Kent, mazdakent.com. Beck Center for the Arts in Lakewood, Ohio is a nonprofit arts organization that creates arts experiences for all ages, starting at six weeks for babies and caregiver music group classes to watercolor painting for those in their late 90s, you and your family can find something that excites and engages all of you throughout your lives. Enjoy a youth theater production, a dance performance, professional theater plays and musicals, or get involved with a music, dance, theater, or visual arts class. Visit the Lakewood campus and experience free visual arts exhibitions that rotate throughout the year. Check out all Beck Center has to offer at beckcenter.org. Nestled on a 45-acre estate, McGregor Assisted Living features 90 new private suites, supporting our mission to promote lifelong health and wellness for older adults while helping them find meaning in their retirement years. McGregor Assisted Living, build a lifestyle that suits you. Donna Jackson Nakazawa is the author of four books that explore the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and emotion, including The Angel and the Assassin, named one of the best books of 2020 by Wired Magazine, and Childhood Disrupted, which was a finalist for the Books of a Better Life Award. Her work has appeared in Wired, Stat, The Boston Globe, The Washington Post, Health Affairs, Parenting, AARP Magazine, and Glamour, and has been featured on the cover of Parade and in Time. She's appeared on Today, NPR, NBC News, and ABC News. She's a regular speaker at universities, including the Harvard Division of Science Library Series, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Arizona. She lives with her family in Maryland. Welcome, Donna. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure to be here talking with you today. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate it. I really um, enjoyed your book. It's hard because it's like enjoyed. There were so many things that were, you know, alarming, but you also gave a lot of um, hope and a lot of um, kind of, uh, I don't want to say they weren't tips they, It's because it's all backed with, you know, your research and experience. So, but really a lot of tools, I would say for parents of girls um, to help them. So, you know, even though some of the things were, you know, a little alarming, it was like, you did, you did leave the readers with a lot of tools and I, that was great. So we'll, we'll um, talk about your book, obviously, as we go through um, Girls on the Brink, Helping Our Daughters Thrive in an Era of Increased Anxiety, Depression, and Social Media. So um, like I said, the statistics, you know, regarding girls and, you know, depression and suicide and anxiety are are quite alarming. Um, So maybe talk about some of that starting out with. Well, sure. So we've known for a while that um, girls are struggling. And what we've seen in the past 10 to 15 years is that they're struggling a lot more than they used to and at much earlier ages. Depression is not only occurring a lot early, a lot more often in girls than in the past, but it's often presenting by the ages of 11 and 12 and 13. And by age 17, a third of girls report having had a period of major depression. I don't just mean being upset over a breakup or mm-hmm. being upset about you know finals or college applications. I mean weeks, if not months, of a period of time marked by hopelessness, despair, not wanting to get out of bed, feeling guilty. Um, all the kinds of things we don't want are amazing and terrific young women to be feeling. We also know that the gap between how girls and boys fare across puberty 
is widening right now. On average, girls are 48% more likely to have depression and 43% more likely to have anxiety than boys of the same ages. And in fact, uh, the rate of depressive symptoms is nearly three times greater in girls than in boys. And in 2021, we all know the pandemic has been like pouring gasoline on the mental health crisis that's facing girls and boys. The CDC reported that suicide rates had increased 51% among girls compared to 4% among boys. So we have a problem and um, I'm sure we'll get into that. And of course, the question as parents, educators, and as a science journalist and investigative reporter is, why is this happening? Why is Mm -hmm. it worse? Why now? And what can we do about it? Definitely. Right. Of course, those are the the questions, right? Why? Why this huge, you know, increase and and then what what can we do about it? And so I know that you write that, you know, it was just in 2016 that scientists started to look at how the stress affects the female brain. Um, Before that, didn't look at females. Right. Crazy, right? So um, anyone who's had any kind of chronic health (laughs) issues as a woman knows that it's really, uh, researchers have been really late to the game to look at female research models. I myself have a heart condition and a pacemaker, and it was really, really only very recently that researchers looked at the female heart. As I'm in at, to figure out what's going on, everything we knew about the female heart had been based on research done in males. <laughs> so it's not really that surprising for me as a reporter, but it is really surprising for parents and educators and for women who aren't reporters to hear that it was only in 2016 that the NIH even asked, it's a request, that sex differences be factored into the design and the reporting of research in mental health and brain health. And before that, regardless of what aspect of mental health was being studied, um, it was just assumed that a male model would and could be applied to everyone. And this really matters because that early research, what we call preclinical or translational research in neuroscience, it is what we base later human clinical trials and uh, interventions on. Now, the main reason that females were excluded is that researchers didn't want those pesky hormones (laughs) to get in the way. So the bottom line here is that everything that we thought we knew about the intersection of stress and mental health across development and puberty and into adulthood, all that we've thought that we've known has been skewed for girls and women by the fact that that knowledge all emanated from male research models. And you know what? It turns out, it turns out that female biology has a big effect on how stress is processed by the brain. And this is especially true in adolescence, which is this really important bridge between childhood and adulthood. When the brain is developing super, super fast and firing and wiring up in new ways. So anyway, this new science of neurobiology of female puberty, which is what I really dug deep into here, which has been done, you might be interested to know, by a group of kick-butt female neuroscientists. <laughs> Finally appropriate, right? (laughs) Finally connects the dots between Mm -hmm. this mental health crisis that we're seeing in our girls and in our young women. And as we said earlier, how we can really better help them. Yeah, that's it's great that it's happening now. It's crazy to think about that it just started happening in, you know, 2016. <laughs> right. And 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 if you know anything about research, you know, well, that meant three years for researchers to put out, you know, grants to get funding. Yes, they weren't actually researching no. in 2016. <laughs> and then two years to write the papers and publish them. So really, this is really science <laughs> of the moment, in the moment. Right, right now. <laughs> right now. Your family safety is our top priority. And Mazda has more Insurance Institute for Highway Safety picks than any other manufacturer. 
So get to your Mazda destination, the all-new Mazda of Kent, mazdakent.com. There's no inventory shortage here. Test drive a new Mazda today. Check out new Mazda CX-5 crossover SUVs, Mazda CX-30 CUVs, even 2023 Mazda CX-50 crossover SUVs. And maintenance is no charge for one year. Plus Mazda certified pre-owned vehicles with a balance of a seven year, 100,000 mile warranty. US News and World Report awarded Mazda best car brand. Come experience our new retail evolution dealership created solely with the customer in mind. We provide a premium experience that customers expect and deserve. Test drive a new Mazda today at your Mazda destination, the all new Mazda of Kent, where my family shops for cars. MazdaKent.com, MazdaKent.com. Talk about a little, you talk about um, stolen, how we have stolen girls in between years. What does that mean? What are the in between years? Well, it's this period of time between seven and 13. And I coined this phrase because there's a term in science called middle childhood, which is kind of a misnomer. It's kind of those years of seven to nine. But really, the in-between years are what um, what public health experts think of as that time when girls traditionally, and maybe looking back, if you're a, a grown-up listening at your own years between seven and thirteen, when kids traditionally have this time and space to kind of develop emotionally and physically without a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. and as I said a minute ago, this is critical. This is a time where a lot is happening in the brain. It's that bridge between childhood and adolescence. But in many ways, we have stolen away those years and we've kind of replaced it with a period that's been marked by competition Mm -hmm. and hierarchical external judgments and evaluations at much, much earlier ages in every way imaginable. I mean, we have earlier timelines. You know, we can just look around and see how that's happening. These higher benchmarks for academic performance, extracurricular sports. Now, in our modern world of social media and media 24-7 on your smartphones and all your devices, this is made more amplified for girls because of this excessive focus that we put on girls' appearance. And we know that girls spend more time on social media, but it isn't just that. It's that on social media, girls are far, far more likely to be disliked, critiqued, Mm. evaluated compared to others and sexualized at very, very early ages on social media and in our media in general, in our culture, there is very little distinction drawn between being a girl and being an adult female woman. We also know that girls are supposed to start using social media apps after 13. That's what the big platforms say. Hmm. But most girls are on social media by the age of eight. Hmm. So we can talk a lot more about that. You know, there's been a lot of research done. You know, girls um, who feel bad about their bodies a third of them say that social media makes them feel worse. And 40% of kids say that feeling bad about themselves started when they started getting on social media. So it's it's this middle childhood time, these in-between years that the brain should be exploring, figuring out identity. What do I like? Who do I like? How do I get along with other people? What do I do if my friends say something to me, you know, that makes me feel bad? And, and yet, Instead, it's this time where all this pressure is coming in so hard, so hot, so fast. And guess what? The brain has not wired and fired up to put all of that in context or to even begin to know how to respond in healthy emotional ways, including how to ask for help. I'm like over here. I'm glad it's not video because I'm like... freaking out because I totally agree with everything you're saying. And I've been saying this for a long time too, but I'm like, I just want to like jump out of my skin and I just want to yell because it's so sad to me that this is happening to these girls, you know, seven to 13, 13 is still a little girl, you know, I mean, 
they're not a you know she's not a baby but they're they're still this little girl and like you said it's been stolen and i feel that so many girls yes this time that's still childhood and innocence and it is just lost and has been stolen um because everyone is in a big rush for some reason it seems like a lot of people in a big rush to have them grow up um and i I don't personally understand that. Um, I mean, you want them to grow and develop, you know, at an appropriate rate, but, you know, we don't need to be talking about, you know, just, just like I was talking about this the other day with my daughter who just turned 12, you know, we were laughing, but it's actually not funny. But I mean, e- even years ago, people start asking, like when they meet her, someone might meet her or something and they don't mean it in a weird way, but it's just like, oh, do you have a boyfriend? No, oh, yeah. Because she's 10, you know, or no, because she's right. But like so many people have asked, and like I said, they don't mean it, you know. No, 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 no. Or well, you know, you look, you look like a woman. What are you, seventeen? Exactly. Like that's a compliment. Um, it's, a, <laughs> it's we compliment kids for growing up. Yeah. Faster. Yes. You look so much older. I would have thought you were. And it's like no, no, no. no. You know. Or <laughs> oh my god, you know, you wow, look at that. You're. We've got to go get you a bra. Oh and, my gosh. Or, or, or even, you know, wow, you know, you're such a great writer. My God, you're going to Harvard and, yeah. and all of that. But, you know, there, and, and gosh, I have a whole chapter in my 15 chapters yeah. on how to, how to break this, um, break this mold and create a healthy one for children and create new scaffolding for what they really need neurobiologically at these different ages. You know, one of the things I talk about is, hey, we've got to step back and and rethink how we mm-hmm. craze and bring in positives in children's lives. It's a whole new way of thinking for us as adults too. Yeah. And it's just, it's something I've always talked to my girls about, you know, like that, if someone's asked them or made those comments, you know, we talk about it right yeah. away. You know, that yeah. person didn't mean it as, you know, they meant it as a company. They were trying to be sweet, you know, however, right. he, it's not appropriate because, you know, and we aren't having, boy, you know, we go through the whole thing. And I mean, those are just teachable moments. Yep. So, so now when they hear my youngest is just turned 12, but now even so when she still hears it or when she did, you know, she'll be polite, but then, you know, she always looks at me, you know, and like <laughs> gives right. me that look, you know, and we will joke about it later because I know she also, you know, thinks it's crazy, but it's because we've talked about it for years, you know, wonderful. those kind of things. That's wonderful. Yeah. But I mean, it's just, it has to be talked about and you're right about just this pressure and, you know, we've, we've always had the attitude and, you know, we're teachers, but like that, it, like middle school is for learning how to figure out how to study and and learn and do that for high school. So it's okay. Like, it doesn't matter really. Like you want to do your best, right? There's no pressure here. This doesn't follow you again, do your best, but this is, this is practice time. This is to learn. So there's no big pressure. That's right. Absolutely. Like why is the pressure, you know, but, but there is, you know, it's like in middle school, you have to do this. It's like, well, they don't really, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. And you said everything, like just even like with sports, you know, everything is any kind of activity or sports, everything's younger and younger and and more intense and more intense, uh, just getting younger and younger. And I don't know how to turn that, you know, back around, but, um, you know, I guess it's just maybe talking to parents like this and trying to get them not to buy into that. Um, because it isn't, it does not help your girls. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. So I'm glad that you, you know, talk about that and you talk about, um, you know, puberty and, and, and it was funny because someone just the other day I was having a conversation with a friend and she asked, why do you think it's happening earlier and earlier. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you'll have to listen to the podcast that's going to come <laughs> out. So, <laughs> but you do talk about that, you know, it is happening earlier and earlier with a lot of girls. Um, and how does that impact them? Right. So puberty is happening earlier. You know, it was uh, 16 and 1800, 15 and 1900. <laughs> um, and today it's 11. So that's another way in which we've shaved off childhood, right? Puberty is happening mm-hmm. a good five years earlier than it did historically. And so there are lots of theories about why it's happening earlier. Um, they include different things like um, 
exposure in the environment to stressors. So we know, for instance, other signs of development set in earlier, like getting your permanent molars, you know, your wisdom teeth, um, sorry, your permanent molars come in earlier in when you've faced a lot of stress. So puberty may also mm. be kind of like a response to the environment. Your body goes, you better grow up fast and get ready for this big, hard world. And, and that may be part of it. Also, there is um, there are many theories. One includes that um, just being exposed to all this sexual messaging at earlier ages, like uh, images are coded by the brain at, uh, at important, 60,000 times more important than words, right? Images are very, very evocative to the brain. And so as girls are growing up and they're seeing all of this imagery of girls as um, women and being, you know, sent messages on, on social media by being like the more clothes they take off on TikTok, for example, <laughs> that may also message the brain at it's what neuroscientists call external titillation. And it tells the brain, oh, puberty's here, you know, it's here, let's do it. Now, other reasons have to do with the environment, you know, changes in diet and the and, and environmental factors. So researchers are working on this. We don't have an absolute answer, um, but we know that it is environmental. And um, the issue here is that when puberty comes in earlier, it also brings with it the onboarding of sex hormones like estrogen. And I just want to say estrogen is this fabulous thing, okay? It is this amplifying system which allows women to have this robust immune response to the environment around it. And part of this is because across evolution, women needed to be able to uh, protect another life, but it's also this thing that allows us to do everything men can do, stay awake 16, 18 hours a day for moms, probably like 20, um, <laughs> you know, multitask, run really fast, do everything that the male body can do, but do it in a smaller body with much smaller organs and make room for a uterus. Estrogen is this master regulating hormone. It allows us to do so much, even on less hardware, so to speak, and at the same time, we may tend to think of it just as this hormone that comes in and brings with it that rush of sexual excitement or moods, you know, or big feelings, but it's also our master regulating hormone for the brain. And it does something else. It's also an amplifier of the stress response. So in a healthy world, in a happy world, in a world where the environment is not overly taxing and not toxic and not stressful. Estrogen is this yay thing. It's an evolutionary advantage that allows the female adolescent brain to literally be a superpower, to wire and fire up in ways where that corpus callosum that, that connects the two hemispheres of the brain is like really connected. That spidey sense is happening, that awareness, that, that broad thinking, that flexibility, that creativity. There's just nothing like that female adolescent brain. But it flips, it flips to a disadvantage when there are unrelenting stressors, when there are toxic messages from the environment, when stress is pedal to the metal, it flips to an evolutionary disadvantage. And in that instance, which is what we're seeing now, it increases the stress immune response in ways that increase inflammation. This is why we see the rate of autoimmune disease after puberty in females is three times higher than that in males. And it is also why we see after puberty that in females, these rates of depression and anxiety in the face of unrelenting stress are higher in girls because estrogen, as I said, is a master regulator in the brain. And that means when there's too much stress in the environment, the brain clocks it and it begins to fire and wire up based on the message that the world out there is not safe. It is not okay. And the brain wires and fires up to prepare for more bad things. And in the brain, that rewiring and firing looks on brain scans 
like the kind of changes that we see in depressive and anxious disorders. Hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, because this is happening earlier, you know, it brings with it these negative, you know, things, but we aren't exactly sure why it's happening environmental, but stress, you know, you're saying is a part of it because of all this pressure. Because of all this pressure. So estrogen, I don't want people to go around thinking it's, it's great. It's why women have more robust response to vaccines, but it's also why women are more likely to get long COVID. It amplifies our response to external stress and that stress can be physical or emotional. And if those stressors don't stop, if we don't mitigate them over time, it can make the intersection of stress and puberty particularly difficult for girls. And we have to layer this on top of the very stark reality, and this can't be underscored enough, that girls routinely face more social and emotional threats and negative comments by virtue of being female. Build a lifestyle that suits you at McGregor and choose how to spend your days. We recognize that finding meaning in our retirement years is foremost. We promote health and wellness throughout our campus where you can enjoy our walking paths, visit with friends on any one of our patios and courtyards, and make new friends. Find meaning in your retirement years. Call McGregor at 216-220-2209. My personal opinion is it's okay for your daughter not to have social media. She's still going to have friends. Right. Absolutely. It's okay. I think that a lot of parents might think it's not, or they're going to miss out, or that's how they, they, they buy into like, well, that's how they all communicate. And that's how, you know, she's going to miss out on everything and not know what's going on. No, I think a lot of the stuff she's going to miss out on is going to be good. (laughs) She's missing out on it. And she's still going to have friends. She's still going to have friends. I have so much devoted to this in the book. You know, it just really what we want to be thinking about is kind of keeping the brain in its appropriate place in development. And one of the reasons that this science I think is so powerful is it helps give us, us like as parents, the knowledge, oh, you know, I actually don't want my daughter's brain to be set on in this high stress response. I don't want her stress machinery to be geared up all the time. And social media is a way of gearing up that stress machinery. Algorithms are created so that we gear up a big emotional response and a big negative emotional response. That is the algorithm. That is what, you know, social media is designed to keep you coming back for those big emotional wallops of feeling, of anger, of despair, you know, and, and so by keeping our girls off of social media and boys a little longer, Mm -hmm. we can know that we are doing something that is neurobiologically protective. And there are lots of ways to build in those decisions as a family in the way that you talk to girls, in the way that you Um, build up social media literacy in your family and help them to kind of as we would in literary criticism, do lit crit on like, where do you think this is coming from? What do you think their life is like when they're not taking pictures of themselves? Why do you think this post got so many likes? How do you think this algorithm works? Why are the top 10 posts these highly emotional, you know, content messages? Um, Who's making money here? Uh, yeah, wow. right. So many clicks, <laughs> critical, you know? and that just goes along with teaching them to be critical thinkers. That's right, and and we can also, you know, as you have mentioned, build these critical conversations around social media and who we are as a family. Like every family has quirky things, you know. Um, my husband is Japanese, and our kids grew up with Friday night haiku nights, and <laughs> it's kind of weird and quirky. But you know, other kids wanted to be part of it over time, and. We can be that quirky family that's like, oh, you know, we don't get cell phones until X age or, you know, instead of that, we do these other things as a family or we all put our, we decorated this crazy monster box in the middle of our, our 
family room and we all drop our phones in there before Mm -hmm. breakfast, before lunch, before dinner, before bedtime, we can make it ours. And when we make even quirky things that fly in the face of society norms, uh, or let me say unhealthy societal norms, even when we do that and it's maybe, you know, okay, so our kid isn't the one with a cell phone at 11. Even when we do that, if we make it our own, if it's our kind of family routine, ritual or value and how we make stories about ourselves, when it's our identity, it can be something our kids can grab onto as part of who they are in the world. And, you know, um, I it it's just a way, again, for us as parents to rethink the way that we allow things as they are, whether it's comments people make about our girls or everybody at 12 having a cell phone on the bus. It's a way of stepping back and asking ourselves what we need to redo from our perspective with our words, with the ways in which we connect with our girls so that they aren't just marching forward. Listen, I've done a lot of events with um, pediatricians. Children's Hospitals is using this book in their national health campaign on the mental health crisis facing girls. And when I talk to pediatricians, they tell me that they have to start this conversation with families. Parents don't actually start this conversation about when to have a phone, what to do with it, how it's used responsibly, or about social media at all. It's slipped into our lives. Mm. And it's that's a really scary thing. And parents will sit in pediatrician's office checking their phones while the pediatrician is talking to them about cell phone use in the family. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've—it's so addicting for everyone, and that's the thing. Try to model good behavior, and I find myself too, like, oh gosh, you know, why am I looking at my phone right now? You know, is this like so stupid time to do it? Or you know, they're watching me. You, you, they know, like you're not really listening. You know, so we all fall into that, but we all fall into it. But we just need to make sure, you know. And I love your box idea. Whatever it takes for you and your family um, is, is a wonderful thing. And yes, having the conversation, you know, when you do what this is why you don't have a phone yet these are the reasons why you know you don't really need it why would you need you know here's what it's actually for or these are the reasons we don't and when you do get that phone here's what we're going to really use it for here's what we're not going to use it for you know at, at these ages and really have that conversation and why you know really explain you know why and why some things are just not age appropriate and the the dangers and and things not that they're you know I think it's just important, you know, you talk a lot about that, just having those conversations about it so they're right. prepared. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, knowing, knowing back, being backed up by the science, you know, I yes. wish we didn't need to be, but when we're backed up by the science and we go, oh, okay. And I write a lot about this in the book, you know, it, um, we can see the adolescent brain responding to social media in real time and it is activating the addiction reward centers in the brain the same way that any addictive substance does. This is how these platforms are created. We know as adults, they're addictive, as you said. And it's the areas of the brain that, that light up over time are similar to when we think about winning the lottery, you know? So, so we want to keep going back to see if somehow we are having that magic moment. But we also see that is kids come across these years and enter puberty in the teenage years, that when they see what's getting liked and disliked on social media, it changes the areas of the brain that neuroscientists refer to as those be careful filters so that your child might be sitting there with you and the car and you're they're going to a party and you're like, and as we agreed as a family, you don't drink at parties, you know, you're ex age and your kid, mom, of course, I don't, I'm not going to drink at this party. But when there is a lot of exposure to social media, those be careful filters are more likely to change in real life settings when it comes to decision-making 
about health risk behaviors. And so we don't really want at this age, when the brain is wiring and firing up for life, for it to wire and fire up in unprotective ways so that we see poor decision-making. Beck Center for the Arts in Lakewood, Ohio is a nonprofit arts organization that creates arts experiences for all ages. Starting at six weeks for babies and caregiver music group classes to watercolor painting for those in their late 90s, you and your family will find something that excites and engages all of you throughout your lives at every skill level. Enjoy a youth theater production, a dance performance, professional theater plays and musicals, or get involved with a music, dance, theater, or visual arts class. Visit the Lakewood campus and experience free visual arts exhibitions that rotate throughout the year. Beck Center even offers creative arts therapies for all ages and all abilities in music, dance, theater, and visual arts in a private lesson or group class setting at a school, clinic, or on the campus. If someone in your life is autistic, these services are highly beneficial. Great progress can be made through arts therapy at any step in a client's journey. Check out all Beck Center has to offer at beckcenter.org. I want to move to another, it's great. There's so much we could talk the whole time about, uh-huh. you know, social media that definitely, because it's just, it's never ending and it's it just, yeah, it's just so much, but it, but it's so important. I think, you know, for, for parents to really get a, get a hold of what it really is and not to just think like, it's fine. They're just talking with their friends and you know, there's right. nothing, it's no big deal. Um, so another thing that I really like that you write about is, you know, that connection with your daughter. And obviously today we're talking about girls, but a lot of these things can apply, you know, but with your son, but really having that connection and to, especially as they get older, you know, listen more and give less advice. I think that's hard for a lot of people um, because we want to fix it. We want to help them. And, you know, we can, we, we know what to do. We just listen. We know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. And early on, right. That's, that's our role. If your child is running down a gravel path and falls and has, you know, stones in their knee, that's our job is, is fix it. There's nothing wrong. I just want to reassure parents, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, it is a given that you love and adore your children, right? You get up every morning. It's probably what you think about more than anything else during the day. Your head rises from the pillow. Your head sinks to the pillow. I am the mom of two children. I know for me and pretty much every parent I know, that is how we roll. So we're doing everything we can. We have all the best intentions. None of this should be read as sort of like a critique of how we parent. And early on being the fixers is life-saving. Both my kids have had, you know, serious health issues early in life and and that's how we save their lives. Mm. But- as kids come across those years, those in-between years, we want to be moving away from jumping in as the fixer, the detective, or the judge, you know, like, who did that? Where? Give me that, you know, um, or driving, you know, something to school that they forgot. And we really want the brain to begin to wire and fire up for resiliency, right? That's become kind of a cliche phrase. But mm-hmm. one of the ways we have to do that is by allowing a little bit of wobble And also allowing kids to draw upon something that is their natural gift of childhood, which is something philosophers call lantern-like thinking. It is this type of thinking that we can see in brain scans involves all of these areas of the brain that as we get older, we kind of shut down to have our laser focus and get it done. And you you had to do that before this podcast. I had to do that before this yeah. podcast. We are great as adults of, at shining a flashlight on each little thing so we can do it right, fix it, move on to the next thing. But when we bring our little flashlights into children's issues, feelings, thoughts, emotions, decision-making, we take away the opportunity for them to use that lantern-like consciousness. And we also rob them of the ability to just sit and have really difficult feelings. And when we do that, we will find over time that we've done two things. We begin to erode the sense of parent-child connection that we've worked so hard to grow, 
or what researchers call parent-child attunement, that degree to which we can really tune in to what our daughters are thinking and feeling, not what we're thinking and feeling, what well, not what we think it has to happen, but what they really are thinking and feeling. And at this age, it's hard for them to articulate. They need time to do that. And when feelings are difficult, as they often are in today's pandemic, climate change, social media, school shooting universe, we take away the opportunity for them to have their feelings and figure out how to connect with us around them. And until we know what they're thinking, we can't possibly know how to help them. It's really good, right? And like you said, everything comes from a good place and we want to help and 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 give that advice. But it's really, especially like you said, as they get older, it's really about listening more um, and, and kind of maybe even more guiding or, you know, than, than exactly jumping in and fixing and doing. Right. And, yeah. you know, studies show that um, our kids are more likely to talk to us during these ages when we are attentive listeners. And this stat really jumps out at me. It, you are going to hear more details from your child. You are going to hear more of their deeper thinking and their worries and their concerns when you don't ask a single question. Mm wrap your mind around that. Yeah, that's crazy because obviously we want to, you know, or we just keep firing the questions and trying to. <laughs> right. And a lot of times that's soothing our own anxiety. Oh, yeah. Understandable, right? So we do a lot of work in the book um, in these 15 pretty, you know, meaty strategies, um, doing our own work there to kind of like figure out how we can get our own um, dysregulation in check and in place because we really can't calm a child in front of us if we haven't first regulated ourselves. So another really interesting study that always blows people's minds is that girls are 12 times more likely to flourish across adolescence if a family can answer yes to one question uh -oh. out of all the questions <laughs> on this very complex survey done by the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins, can this child come and talk to you about really difficult and hard things, no matter how difficult they are? Yeah, great question, right? Can they really do that? Are they going to be worried? I'm sure, you know, some of that behind is, are they going to be worried about your reaction? Um, you know, are you going to freak out? <laughs> right. And so I hope what parents understand is that there's just a little, these things don't happen magically, parent-child connection, attunement, for your kids being able to turn to you with anything, making it a good experience for them when they do come to you with, with hard to hear things, right? Like hard to hear things. Like, you know, I sent a picture of my cleavage, you know, to this, whatever it is. These really hard things are going to happen in our society, in our world. And all of this work that we do as parents, it, it really entails a different way of thinking. But in the book, it's just packed with literal scripts. Because guess what? When we're in these high stakes moments... We're anxious. We're worried about our child. And guess what the brain does? It goes completely offline. All our mm -hmm. higher level thinking, we cannot access it. We cannot ask access all that we've learned in our lifetime, all that we know. We go right to our habitual responses, many of which are framed by our own childhood or by the stressors or traumas that we faced in our own life, maybe in a similar situation, or maybe at that same age that our child is right now. And we know these things. We have good research on all of this. So sometimes we have to re-narrate how we talk to and connect with our children. And it takes a little bit of work on our end, but it, it's so rewarding. It's like relationship gold when we begin to do this work. And you do write a lot about that, you know, when your daughter does turn to you, you know, make it a good experience for her, which is just what you were saying, you know, is she, and that's just like normal, right? You're not going to go to someone like, Hey, this person's gonna, you know, judge me or yell or be disappointed or freak out, you know, whatever that might be. 
obviously you're going to kind of think twice before you <laughs> maybe go and willingly share things, right? Right. We know this so. in our lives as adults, right? If something, if you're having really difficult emotions, maybe emotions you even feel kind of, you know, worried or guilty or ashamed about, are you going to go to somebody who in the past has had the skills and the right words at the right time, or maybe just offering you what we call biosynchrony, this sense mm -hmm. that every cell in them is attuned to and listening to every cell in you. Are you going to, which person are you going to go to? Somebody who says, well, I think you should ABC or how did that happen? Or what did you do? Or are you going to go to someone with whom your whole body relaxes? And when we mm -hmm. see the state of parent-child attunement, it's more than just you being calm. It's neurobiologically protective. What I mean by that is that your state of calm, which is really on a cellular level, creates in your child a state of calm. Their heart begins to regulate and beat more normally. Their amygdala, that alert center in the brain, calms down. Their breathing deepens. And they begin to enter a state where they can start to do their own problem solving. That's great. That's a great thing. I know just with time, we, I know you wrote so much in the book, obviously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. But I know you have. Yeah. yeah. No, like even your 15 anecdotes, I, I think those are great. Um, you know, read through all of those and you, you discuss those in the book, you know, um, building blocks of good parent-child connection, family res um, resilience. You talk about, you know, be her tribe and make her home a safe space. Bring in what the wider tribe be bring in what the wider tribe can provide and ready her to stand on her own. And then within those, you have 15, you know, anecdotes and then explanations on those. And th those are, those are wonderful. I think even if some parents can just grab onto some of those, right. And make, if they're, you're looking to make some changes or have that deeper connection, I think, you know, grab onto some of those and focus on some of those would be really helpful. I think. Oh, you know, I've heard from, so we have book clubs going all over the country, a uh, national book club going. And, um, one of the things that I've heard from parents is, you know, they're taking little screenshots of pages mm. of the book that they've highlighted and they put sticky notes on and they text them to themselves. Uh, some parents have told me they've made little index cards that they put on the inside of their kitchen cabinets. Oh, that's great. And another had put a little set of things that really spoke to her um, in how we respond. Because as I said, there are a lot of scripts in the book, in her car visor, right? Because yeah. a lot of these conversations, they happen in the kitchen, they happen over meals. When, you know, kids spill over food, they spill in the car. And just knowing that wherever you are, you could start wherever you are, but there are these dozens and dozens of neurobiologically studied, reliable, very easy and doable skills out there for you to expand your toolbox. It's really made pretty easy for you by this book. And even if you skip all the science, right? I've heard from some parents, the science was their favorite part. It blew their mind. And from others, they just, it, they didn't want to really know how bad it is out there. They just <laughs> want to know what to do. And I respect all of that. Mm -hmm. So whatever works for you, you know, these two years of reporting and talking, following three girls for two years and talking to the top neuroscientists in the world who've done this research and the top public health experts, you know, this is my gift to parents. You know, I have kids, I have a daughter. I wish I had reported and written this book when she was nine or 10. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, it's, it's something that I just help, hope helps you not struggle quite so much and make these years more joyful. I think it absolutely will be. I think you're already seeing that in some of the, you know, feedback that you've gotten. So I think it's great. And I love that you ended on that. Yes, just more joyful. And that's, that's just a beautiful thing. How can the reader, my listeners find you and find your book? 
Yeah, it's so easy. Um, I'm at DonnaJacksonNakazawa.com, and <laughs> Nakazawa is not the easy part. It's N-A-K-A-Z-A-W-A. Same on Instagram, Donna Jackson Nakazawa, Twitter, Donna Jack Nak. And of course, Girls on the Brink is the name of the book, and it is available everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Yeah, you will find it everywhere. CNN just did a big story about the book. You know, it's, it's you just Google Girls on the Brink and you will find it. It's great. It's a great book. Please get the book and read it and connect with Donna as well on social media, even though we were talking about social media, but as an adult, you can connect with her. That's the one thing you can do on there. Well, you know, it's, it's really, there's so many ways we're using social media for good. Yes. And, yeah, um, no, there are many yeah. ways for good. That's exactly yeah. right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Thank you so much um, for being here. I really enjoyed it. We could talk a lot more, a lot of things I even had written down, but it was a great conversation and I think very, very helpful. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sponsored by the all-new Mazda of Kent. Your family safety is our top priority. And Mazda has more Insurance Institute for Highway Safety Picks than any other manufacturer. So get to your Mazda destination, Mazda of Kent. Check out new Mazda CX-5 crossover SUVs, Mazda CX-30 CUVs, even 2023 Mazda CX-50 crossover SUVs and U.S. News & World Report awarded Mazda Best Car Brand. Check out their new retail evolution dealership, the all-new Mazda of Kent, mazdakent.com. Beck Center for the Arts in Lakewood, Ohio is a nonprofit arts organization that creates arts experiences for all ages. Starting at six weeks for babies and caregiver music group classes to watercolor painting for those in their late 90s, you and your family can find something that excites and engages all of you throughout your lives. Enjoy a youth theater production, a dance performance, professional theater plays and musicals, or get involved with a music, dance, theater, or visual arts class. Visit the Lakewood campus and experience free visual arts exhibitions that rotate throughout the year. Check out all Beck Center has to offer at beckcenter.org. Nestled on a 45-acre estate, McGregor Assisted Living features 90 new private suites, supporting our mission to promote lifelong health and wellness for older adults while helping them find meaning in their retirement years. McGregor Assisted Living, build a lifestyle that suits you. Thank you for listening to Apparently Speaking. Listen and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and iHeartRadio. Find the podcast and much more at northeastohioparent.com, like Apparently Speaking on Facebook, and email me at podcast at northeastohioparent.com.